Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Hey, Jason, do you remember BPI? Oh, yeah, Blind LGBT Pride International. They're a special interest affiliate of ACB. Yes, they are the ones doing all these cool things at convention, yoga, wine tastings, fun parties, as well as other interesting learning activities. Well, guess what they're up to now? Ooh, do tell. They are now having their own show on ACB Radio Mainstream. It's called Pride Connection. That's great. But what if I'm not a part of the LGBT community? No worries. This is a show for everyone. Actually, non-LGBT and non-disabled folks are known as allies, and they are a huge portion of BPI's membership. And in the words of BPI's leadership, everyone is welcome. BPI is proud to offer an open space where you can be yourself. Mm, So what kinds of topics can I expect from Pride Connection? Fun and relevant topics for everyone, from blindness topics to LGBT education, technology to advocacy, accessibility issues to everyday topics. So when will Pride Connection take place? Every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Be sure to tune in so we can all connect, mingle, and learn while having fun. Pride Connection. Join the BPI party every Tuesday at 10 p.m. on ACB Radio Mainstream. BPI presents Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. Tuesdays at 10 p.m. Eastern on ACB Radio Mainstream or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Pride Connection. As always, I am one of your hosts, Anthony Corona. I am here with Gabriel Lopez Cafati, president of Blind Pride International. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Pride Connection. We have an awesome show for you. We are going to hand over the reins of Pride Connection in a few minutes to two longtime BPI members, two amazing gentlemen who I am sure will keep you fascinated for the next hour. But before Gabriel introduces them, I know he had a quick president's message. Absolutely. Uh, We are thrilled. As you all know, we celebrated not long ago our first year of being part of the ACB radio community. Uh, So we welcome your feedback, your suggestions, your comments, your participation. We have opened it up for our BPI members, but if you're an ally or a friend and you want to either join BPI or host a show, please reach out to us. Our email address is membership at blindlgbtpride.org. That is membership at blindlgbtpride.org. We'll be happy to hear your voice and amplify your voice through Pride Connection and through our 
spot here on ACB Radio. So, as Anthony said, without further ado, I don't want to take much more time because this is a treat that we have for you. Two founding members of our organization, our beloved organization, now BPI, back then BFLAG, in a conversation. And I don't want to give any spoilers because both gentlemen have fascinating voices, fascinating stories. They're both artists. They're both just amazing all around guys, which we, who we feel proud to have as part of our organization and who we thank for being part of the founding, the first blocks of what now is BPI. Mr. Dwayne Estes and Mr. Harvey Miller, welcome to Pride Connection. The show is yours. Thank you so much, Anthony, Gabe. It's great to be here. I have the very distinct honor and pleasure of talking with one of my dear friends, and I call him a colleague. I don't know if he feels that way, but that's what I call him. I'm going to have a discussion today with Dr. Harvey Miller who has done all sorts of wonderful things uh, musically. We're just going to get started. And uh, Harvey, I'm, I'm going to ask you, if you don't mind, to just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and where did you come okay, from, uh, where have you been? All right. I will try to run through that a little bit. I uh, basically grew up in a small town in the middle of North Carolina. Uh, Salisbury is the name, uh, named, of course, after the Salisbury, England. But it uh, was basically German settled back in the 17th, 18th century. Uh, my folks came here actually in 1733 from Germany, settled in Pennsylvania, then moved to North Carolina. The town was a, a nice, comfortable town. I had two siblings, uh, an older brother and older sister. And uh, in fact, they were so much older than I. It was almost like a different generation. In fact, it was, I suppose. Uh, my brother was almost 12 years older than I, and my sister was 14 years older. So I came along as a surprise, apparently. My Early years were spent, as I said, in Salisbury, starting kindergarten, first grade. And I went partially through the third grade in Salisbury. And by then, my vision started going. And so, therefore, I was taken out of school. The doctors told my folks that if I stayed in any longer, that I may, uh, may start developing psychological problems, I suppose, uh, because I would be falling behind other students. And so I was taken out of school and my mother homeschooled me then. And I finished the third grade at home. Then I spent another year out of school, taking tests, going to doctors, Etc., etc. And in the meantime, 
This was during the Second World War. So you can see I'm fairly old here. And my brother and sister both went into service. Uh, my brother dropped out of his sophomore uh, in college, uh, sophomore year, and uh, joined the Army Air Force. And my sister, who had already finished school, uh, became an officer in the Navy, uh, Lieutenant uh, J.G., and uh, was stationed in West Virginia. It's sort of odd, but they had an officer's training school there. And my brother was in Canada, but shortly after my 10th birthday, uh, he was killed in service. And he was 21 years old then. My goodness. So my folks had to make a decision. My brother had gone to North Carolina State college at that time and he had gone over to the school for the blind and assured my folks that it was a very nice campus he said it looked very much like a small college campus with trees and buildings brick buildings and so forth and that he thought I would be comfortable there or good there. So shortly after my brother's funeral, I was taken to the school for the blind. And I'm sure that it must have been quite traumatic for my parents. Of course, my siblings had built me up saying that it's just like going to college. And of course, uh, I was very excited about going away. Uh, even though I was quite upset, of course, about my brother. So anyway, I spent 10 years at the School for the Blind. Uh, the first year, half year, I spent uh, in a, a class learning how to read Braille. And then I went into a regular classroom around January. Before I went to the school, my parents tried to find all kinds of ways to have activities. My parents both were uh, reading to me. My parents, my mother in particular, every afternoon she would read books. Uh, and I was enrolled in uh, a voice class. I was about eight years old at that time. So I had already been studying piano for two years when the music got a little bit difficult for my vision. So I had to drop out of piano, but I did study voice. And then when I went to the school for the blind, my mother said, uh, asked the voice teacher if I could study voice as well as piano and said, oh, he's too young to do that. And so I sang for the voice teacher and I was scheduled in for voice lessons. <laughs> I studied voice, piano, and then started violin and cello and organ over the 10 years that I was at the School for the Blind. And because of having so much music, I decided that maybe I should major in music. So I went off to the University of North Carolina to major in piano. Uh, voice was easy for me. Violin was so easy, I just thought, 
I needed something challenging. So I wanted to study piano as my major. I continued studying voice and violin, but not as a major. Do, do you have perfect pitch? Not really. I just have relative pitch. I don't okay. have perfect pitch. No. Okay. Okay. I mean, I could uh, usually tell you what key a piece is in, but it's not because I have perfect pitch. So many blind folks are, I can't say gifted because I think it's a gift and a curse to have perfect pitch, but we've just never discussed that. And I, I just realized yeah. that <laughs> I didn't know that. So I, I'm uh, well, I'm glad you ask. <laughs> absolutely. And now, and, you know, <laughs> absolutely. And in, in yes. music school and ear training and all that, we're, we're taught intervals and ear training and all that. So um, uh, I, while I was at the school for the blind, I learned to tune pianos. And that also sharpens the ear as far as pitch is concerned, uh, because you do have to listen very carefully when you're tuning. Absolutely. When did you start composing? Actually, I started, I wouldn't say composing, I'd say creating on the piano when I was two and three years old. Uh, It was mainly creating sounds, I would say. Creating music probably didn't start until I was eight or nine years old. At that point, I had known about uh, composers and heard their music and wanted to create some for myself. Was there a composition class offered at the School for the Blind? No, no, there was none. And in fact, I really didn't get any composition classes until I got to graduate school. So at Chapel Hill, we were required in theory classes to write music. And I tried to be creative with harmony exercises. And then we had to write in various forms, like variation form and sonata form and other forms of that sort. And uh, so I always tried to be uh, more than just writing exercises. Right. You wanted your exercise to sound like a piece of music. Exactly. Yes. That's really cool. And knowing you, I'm not surprised at all. Tell me about learning to use Braille music. I know that it's built on the six cell system uh, that Louis Braille came up with uh, for blind folks to be able to read. But give us a little bit of an idea of how Braille music works. I uh, started immediately uh, when I went to the School for the Blind learning to read Braille. I had to learn also to read Braille music, uh, which is a different code from that of uh, literary Braille. It's really very ingenious in that Louis Braille created this when he was 12 years old, you know. It's amazing. Uh, He spent several years after that perfecting it, of course, figuring out various signs that one should have in music. But he created the notes themselves out of the six-dot system. And what he did was he used the four dots at the top to tell 
what the note is. In other words, of C, D, or E, or whatever. And then he created symbols that went in front of that note to say what octave it was in, meaning if it was third octave, fourth octave, fourth octave C, of course, is middle C. Right, right. And so he had symbols for all of that, uh, all the way up to seventh octave. He also used the bottom two dots to tell what kind of note it was. So that if both the two dots were visible, uh, at the bottom, you would, uh, it indicated that it was a whole note. The, um, one dot on the, well, I guess you would call it on the left side would be a quarter note. One dot on the right side would be half note, etc. Uh, no dots would be eighth note. And then sixteenth note starts over like a whole note. And you simply know by uh the number of uh notes with two dots on the bottom in the measure that it was certainly would not be a whole note that it would be a sixteenth note so you'd know by the time signature and he created the time signature the flats and sharp signs the measure with sign uh or in accord sign as some people call it in other words, if it's a counter, if one hand was playing counterpoint, it would have a symbol that would indicate that there was one line uh, above the other, and they may have different note values. Wow, that is ingenious. But not being a, a user of Braille, it sounds a bit complicated <laughs> to me. Well, you have to. Eliminate your ideas of alphabet in literary sense and go into a different sense for the code for music. Uh, just like for math, uh, it uses some of the same symbols, but uh, an E is five when you're reading a math book or writing math down. Uh, it no longer is an E. You think of it as a five. And uh, in music, an E in literary Braille is no longer an E. It's a D. In a way, it kind of almost sounds like a, a, a transposing instrument, like, um, say, an instrument that is written so that it appears to be a whole step above the note that is actually concert pitch. Yes, yes. Well, I guess you could call it that because a C, one one thing he did was instead of starting the uh, alphabet with A, as, uh, you know, in music terms, you have A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And we know that a is uh, right below the top of the th three black notes <laughs> in between those. So that is a scale using all white notes. 
starting with A. But Louis Braille did the Do Re Mi type of scale, yeah, starting so with C. And so if you think of it as a literary scale, it's D E F G H I J. Okay. <laughs> now are you thoroughly confused? I get it. Coming to um, my journey with blindness after many, many years of reading and writing music on the staff and using all of those signs and symbols, it would be for me, it would be a little overwhelming to try to convert what I already know. Because in, in my mind, if someone says the pitch is an F sharp, well, then I think of the, in the treble clap, I think of the first space and there's a whatever quarter note there and uh it's 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 got a sharp in front of it oh sure Uh, but apparently and obviously this works because people people use it and i would think as a as a pianist that you could read with one hand and and play with the other while maybe like a violinist they're using both hands so they're going to have to memorize a certain amount of music before they can even play it. Well, actually, uh, as a pianist, I had to memorize all my music as I was learning it, actually. Sure. So I would memorize the music and then I would start practicing it. Wow. That just, I just can't even conceive of how to, how to possibly do that without playing it as I'm learning it. Yeah. Well, it, could go along with playing. In other words, you could read with one hand, say, read with the left hand and play the right hand. But then you would have to memorize that in order then to read with the right hand and learn the left hand. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, so I have learned music away from the piano. In other words, just memorized it have learned Bach fugues that way, for example. Wow. Well, it's easier uh, someone just reading the notes and then I would go to the piano and start playing it. So. For our listeners who, who are not musicians, a fugue is a piece of music that has four independent voices and it can get a little hairy to play four totally different voices all at the same time and uh, make all the voices sound even and bring a voice out when it needs to be brought out. It's very difficult to play a few. So I can only imagine that it must've been difficult to memorize a few away from the piano. I couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I know one time I was uh, on a bus ride. It was a three hour bus ride. And the person uh, with me read the music to me. And so by the time I got to the place where I could get to a piano, I had it memorized. So wow, that's that's, was a Bach fugue. That's just absolutely incredible. And it was a three part fugue, though. So it's not. Yeah. (laughs) You, You got away with a little something. Oh yeah, by not having all four parts. But I, I can't. I can't even imagine learning a Bach two-part invention uh, and having to memorize it before I play it. I, I oh my goodness, I I really just 
couldn't imagine doing that. When you compose music, I'm, I'm sure that you must use some type of recording device so that you don't forget what you just uh, composed. And then when you go to write it down, do you, I'm guessing you're writing it out in Braille music. I do, yes. That's where it usually gets to first. Uh, I don't usually try to record and then write it down. And uh, I usually work at a piano uh, with a Braille writer next to me. In fact, uh, you can, I don't know whether you can see with the, uh, those of you who can see, <laughs> um, my piano is right here behind me. It's a, a Sony electronic piano. And uh, on the left side is my Perkins Railer. We find a way to do what we need to do. Exactly. That's quite true. That's incredible. So you finished your master's degree as well at, at Chapel Hill, North Carolina? I did, yes. Uh-huh. I actually finished two bachelor's degrees uh, at Chapel Hill at that time. The uh, bachelor of music degree was a fifth year ordeal, or I should say <laughs> a fifth year uh, accomplishment, I should say. Yes, music, uh, music school is an ordeal. Yes, it is, right. But uh, for the first four years, I simply worked on a Bachelor of Arts degree, and I got no credit for things like trivia, things like piano and violin and voice. In fact, I think it was after four years of studying piano and practicing you know, four hours a day at least, uh, I got a, a three-hour credit for it. Wow. Things are certainly different today. Today, your lesson is is just is, is part of the hours that are counted toward your degree. As you know from all your years of teaching, the student um, prepares pieces and then are uh, graded on the performance they give at the end of the semester. I don't know when that was implemented, but I can't imagine having to practice four hours a day and not getting credit for it. I would be a little upset. Yeah, well, I had to be graded, take exams in piano, and uh, had to be at every class, you know, every private lesson. Otherwise, I would be reprimanded. But it was just that uh, you realize that there, that's what you got. Right. Absolutely. So after graduate school, you decided you were going to do a DMA. So, yes. And so I went to Indiana University for that. So, you know, that's a very fine music school. That was after, I guess, three years of teaching. I decided to go there for an experiment just to see if I liked it. And then I went back, I guess, after in 67 to 69. So uh, I was away from teaching during that time. Had two children by then, too. Oh, my goodness. That was, I'm sure, a little a little hard to juggle all of that. Now, yeah, yeah. Fortunately, we had, we lived in a, a student dormitory, and there were other graduate students in the building. And 
with wives who were willing to take on uh, babysitting for children. That's very cool. Now, did you um, emphasize composition in, as part of your DM, DMA or? Yes. What, what yes. Were you? It was composition. I studied with Juan Arego Salas and also uh, Bernard Haydn. Juan Arego Salas was a uh, Chilean composer teaching there at Indiana University. Bernard Haydn had been a student of Hindemith, so he taught uh, Hindemith counterpoint, and that's what I studied with him. My goodness. So were you composing using Braille music? How, how did Actually, you- at that time, I had enough vision, and I had uh, some microscopic glasses, and I was able to write the music on large, large paper, large uh, score paper. And uh, the teacher accepted what I, the marks that I put on there as music. And I'm not sure, uh, I haven't looked, uh, haven't had anybody look at that music. Of course, I have lost most of my vision since then. So You're to be commended for, for really stepping out and, and doing that, as we have both agreed, being blind is a nuisance. And when it comes to communicating with others using something that is written, whether it's whether it's print or music, it's really difficult to find the way to do that. And then also, if, if you're in an academic setting, to get that professor or professors to accept what it is we're able to do, because they have their way and they don't really care about learning another. Oh, exactly. And it is not easy even as a partial vision person to actually be accepted by other people. They think of you as being blind, whether you you can see some things or not. In fact, uh, when I was hired here at Brevard College, Apparently, there was a big uh, brouhaha in town about the college hiring a blind person. And there were people here in town who thought that uh, that was disgraceful. Of course, they wanted to be hired. But uh, I was given the opportunity to teach here, even though I, I was legally blind. When you were teaching there at the college, what did you teach and uh, how many years did you teach? I started teaching sight singing. <laughs> I always thought that was funny, but... Uh, yeah, yeah, that is funny. <laughs> that is funny. But I had to memorize, of course, all the pieces that I was uh, having the students sight me because I had to know whether they were doing it correctly or not. So I would memorize pieces for each class. Uh, had three classes a week, and uh, they were not difficult pieces since these were freshman, sophomore, sightseeing classes. Right. Also taught piano and voice. Uh, occasionally, we would get a violinist, and I would have to teach them also. So. And then uh, I guess it was about my third year here, the chairman of the department went back to school 
and he had been conducting the the uh, touring choral group, and the uh, job then fell on my shoulders. Uh, and I had not really conducted any choral groups except children's groups up until that time. So I had to make sure that I uh, was uh, up and going because this was a 60-voice choir that went on tour. And I had to arrange the tours. I had to arrange for buses, et cetera, et cetera. And all of that fell on my shoulders as to uh, having to do all of that. I would imagine you had to choose the repertoire, and um, I, I hope you had an accompanist. Yes, I always had an accompanist, which was nice. Uh, it was either a student or a faculty member, uh, usually. And uh, I would always uh, go to a music shop, which is in Charlotte, not too far from Brevard. And uh, I would choose music for the fall as well as the spring concerts, order the music. And uh, then we had, fortunately, student assistance. Uh, it was, to a certain extent, a work school. Sure. At least there were quite a few students who were uh, on work scholarships. And so they were the ones who stamped the music and got it ready, put them in the folders and put numbers on them and et cetera, et cetera. Did so, all of that. Uh, so I would imagine you had to learn all of the parts so you could hear if there were wrong notes coming from one section or another. And also as a way to be able to conduct a piece of music, you, you've got to know it. You've got to know it very well. Yes. There were some things, very few things that were available in Braille. And I would order those in addition to the choral group at the college. I was also conducting a civic choral group of about 80 people. And so I had to learn that music, too. You're a busy guy. Yes, yes. And I guess it was uh, my first four years here, I was also playing in the Asheville Symphony, playing the violin, and had to memorize all of that. I'm just curious, what chair did you sit? Uh, first chair. How could have you been anywhere else? Well... <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's fantastic. That's just incredible. And that, and yet that's more music you've got to memorize. Exactly. Yeah. And I've learned most of that. Fortunately, we were doing music that was familiar, but I had to learn most of that by listening to records. And so that's how I learned the orchestra music. And fortunately, I was playing first chair too. So I didn't have to try to uh, figure out that those little parts in in between. <laughs> exactly, you're you're, you're always on top. <laughs> yes, you were you were right there on top, and you had the melody as it were, and that's much easier to hear than all those little inner parts. Exactly, exactly. Yes. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. So, when when did you start teaching at Rivard, and and when did you when did you retire? Uh, in 1960, I started teaching, and uh, I retired in in 99. 
So oh, goodness. 40 years. My goodness. That's such, that's such an accomplishment. That, that's just unbelievable in many ways that someone who is blind got to have the teaching career that you got to have and to hold that job for 40 years. That's, that's absolutely incredible. You're to be commended for that. And I'm, I'm sure there were a few times you felt like, I just want to go home. Well, yes. And there were times that I'm sure that uh, there were people in the administration who would like for me to go home. (laughs) You weren't going to, you weren't going to go that easy. No, no, Um, no. Well, I I think that uh, I probably irritated some people because they wanted me to do uh, more, more folky music, I guess, in the choral ensemble. Right. right. And uh, music that, oh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, surely you could do that every year. Of course, I felt like, okay, uh, those are significant pieces, perhaps, but not for teaching college kids. Absolutely. And if you do the battle hymn, um, you do it one year and you don't do it again for eight. Yes, exactly. Yes. That's exactly. So, so when did you really become established as a composer? And I know your music has been played all over the world. And how did you get it heard and make that happen? I, I think that, must have been kind of difficult to do. Basically, I read Braille magazines <laughs> and found out about uh, competitions. And so I just sent my music into various competitions. And when they, the pieces started winning and uh, being been performed, uh, I felt myself lucky. Did you get to attend any of the performances? Yes. I, there was one in London I didn't attend, but I did attend some in the, the Czech Republic. That's wonderful. Uh, There's one nothing in particular, quite... my daughter and I went uh, to uh, a little town where the festival was taking place, uh, Mariansky Lasnia in the Czech Republic. And it was a Prague group that played, actually, Prague Conservatory. I'm a bit of a composer and do arrange, and I think you'll agree. But when you when you get to hear a piece of music that you have either composed or arranged, and you get to hear it, it's an incredible feeling. It's almost as if you're giving your piece over to the universe and allowing that conductor to interpret your music, hoping they get it right. But it's just so incredibly exciting to hear what you wrote, or at least it is for me. Yes. And it's interesting also to hear various interpretations of it. Uh, In other words, uh, one conductor would do one thing with it and another would do something else. I never forget my second symphony, which was uh, for strings. He, uh, the 
second composer, the second uh, conductor, I should say, felt that uh, one of the movements should have sliding strings. And so he would be sliding from one pitch to the next. And I had not thought about doing that, but I I thought it was pretty effective. It was a rather strange movement anyway. Were you ever in in a situation where you weren't agreeing with how your piece was being uh, interpreted and you wanted to run down the aisle and say, no, 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 do it this way. This is the way it really is. Well, no, I never did. I figured, okay, the conductor has the privilege of doing what he wishes with the music as long as it's the music is still there. I mean, I don't want something (laughs) completely off the wall done with my music but that was uh, sort of an interesting method of playing it i suppose that's really um it's it's just it's just incredible that you've done all these things in your life and and i in thinking about talking to you about this stuff which which much of it I've heard because I've I've known you over 20 years but in but in thinking about talking to you about it it's really amazing that you have accomplished all the things you have accomplished in your lifetime and I would imagine you're still at it well yes uh I'm still working on music uh I can't stop <laughs> no, uh, no I I should stop maybe I don't know but uh, I, I Yes, I feel your pain. I, I think there <laughs> might be a few people that wish I would stop, but I just can't help it. Yeah, right. Exactly. That's just really cool. What are what are you working on now? Or do you have anything that's that's kind of well, on the front, front burner? I'm working on a uh, piece for nine players right now, chamber work. I did a piece several years ago. Several years ago, I called concertino for eight and this is simply concertino for nine i I had uh three strings three woodwinds percussion and keyboard in the original piece and i simply added a horn a french horn to this group with the same more or less the same uh instead of harpsichord though i'm using a piano in this work I know your daughter, Jennifer, went to uh, the San Francisco Conservatory of Music as a French hornist. Is she going to get to play the French horn part? We'll see. I I probably will let her do it. (laughs) Actually, I did a piece for her several years ago now. I rewrote it recently, and she played it. But it was for two harpsichords and horn originally. Uh, it was it was uh, commissioned by a church uh, in the next town over because they had just acquired a second harpsichord and they wanted a piece for two harpsichords and wanted my daughter to play horn. So uh, I wrote it for that and I rewrote it for organ and just one organ, of course, and horn recently. And uh, that worked out very nicely, I thought. That's really exciting. And that's that's really that's really neat. I'm sure Jennifer was full of pride getting to play dad's music. Yeah, we have actually 
cooperated and collaborated several times. She wanted to do the uh, Benjamin Britten for uh, strings, oboe, I mean, strings, horn, excuse me, strings, horn, and tenor. And I did that with her. When did you all do that? That was probably 10 years ago now. Again, it's just uh, it's just amazing that that you've been able to to do all these things. Uh, have you stayed in touch with some students? Have have some s- students called or came back around to see how you are or to ask oh, yes. your advice and yes, actually. all that. Yeah, uh, I have one who uh, recently sent me a CD that he had made. It was. Uh, of uh, organ music. He plays in a church in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, He was in New York for a while and uh, uh, he had made this recording he wanted me to have and he just sent it to me. That's that's really cool and I I think that one of the greatest compliments a uh, an instructor can be paid is to be contacted by former students and seek out their advice and and, and get their counsel on on what they're working on or, or what would you do. I know I've certainly done that with several instructors that I've studied with down through the years, and I've always found that they were glad to hear from me, or at least they acted as if they were glad to hear from me and gave me good advice and. That's a that's a really well. It is. It's it's just a really big compliment. It it speaks of of who you are as an instructor, and and you 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 really have made an impression on that person, and especially in in their becoming a musician and and their musicianship. And uh, I'm all about that. Yeah, that's we really- have of course alumni meetings uh, every fall here, and so the students come back and. They all want to see me or whatever, uh, see their old faculty members. Sure. And uh, they uh, always make contact. Well, now, when you retired back in 99, did the college send you off in the proper way? And and, and did you receive any type of um, post-teaching title? Well, yes. I mean, I was given a professor emeritus uh, status at the college. That's that's wonderful. Of course, I didn't stop teaching when I retired, unfortunately. Well, I, anyway, I continued teaching. I was asked to teach at a local community college here, and I taught some music pre with them, and students kept wanting to study with me, and so I did private studies or teaching with some students for several years, you know, that can interfere with your fun sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely. It, it can, it can interfere with your fun, but it also speaks, it speaks of who you are as an instructor and um, the quality that you bring as, as a teacher and that uh, being someone who's sought out to, to study with, that's kind of a big accomplishment in my thinking. Well, I've appreciated that. And I 
you know, I enjoyed doing that. Uh, I hated to get away from the students. It was not so much retiring from teaching so much was as it was retiring from meetings and committees yes. and things yes. of that sort. Yes. Uh, that yes. was not fun. No. Uh, you know, it also, of course, you had faculty uh, relationships that uh, you would like to continue, but uh, uh, not in meetings and, and committees and things of that sort. Uh, yes. You, yes. You want it to be more of a social, continuous uh, right. meeting of faculty, other faculty as friends, in other words. When I taught um, at the Missouri School for the Blind for, for three years between 2003 and 2006, I loved the teaching, but I could not stand the meetings. And there were many times when I would be in a meeting and I would think, now, why are we all here and why are we talking about this? This really doesn't seem to be much about what we're doing. Yeah, that happens, I think, quite often in meetings, You, uh, particularly if the, uh, I guess, the person who's in charge, usually the dean or the president or someone, finds a topic that they would be interested in, but most of the faculty would not be. It can go off the, off the rails. <laughs> yes, indeed. That part, I, I certainly would have loved to have let somebody else tend to for me, but unfortunately um, didn't get to do that. You also are a piano technician and um, you and your partner, Mark, had a very successful uh, piano rebuilding. Yes, actually, uh, piano tuning came in handy quite often because originally the Faculty salaries are not very good at Brevard College when we first arrived. And it was always nice to go out and tune a piano and help buy groceries or shoes for the girls or something of that sort. <laughs> it was always a, a, an addition to faculty salaries. And it helped out. Of course, also, I was usually had a church job as well as uh, uh, Adelaide, my wife, uh, also had a church job. And then after the divorce, Mark and I were together and uh, he wanted to learn to tune pianos. So I taught him how to do it. And we had lots of pianos at the Brevard Music Center to practice on and <laughs> yes, he learned to <laughs> tune pianos and uh, he really got into it much much greater than I did in that he went to the factories uh, to Steinway factory to the Baldwin factory and studied how to put pianos together and uh, he was building a shop here in Brevard it was not quite finished when he died. Though. He died of cancer. So, I'm sure that was a huge loss. And um, but um, he did learn to tune pianos and was excellent at it. He was really a fun piano technician, and I was proud of 
working with him, truly. Also, after that, I taught my daughter how to tune and to work on pianos, and she became an excellent technician. And that supplemented her performance <laughs> income, which was not great, of course. Of course. I think as, as quote-unquote professional musicians, we're always looking for another way to generate a little more money. Exactly, exactly. I certainly understand that. Um, I mean, she played with several professional orchestras, but it did not bring in enough income, really, to sustain her. These were local professional orchestras. Right. The Charlotte Symphony and Greenville Symphony, et cetera. How do you how do you think this um, pandemic that we've that we've had to suffer through the last the last year and looks like still yet longer? How do you how do you think it's going to affect um, live performances? Well, I know it did uh, for Jennifer because uh, she has not really had any of the gigs that she usually has. Uh, she uh, has usually played. A lot of things during Easter or Christmas, you know, all of that is gone by the way. And it's it's uh, really sad. Live music is just not happening very much. That's that's very true. Do you think as we come out of it, say by uh, possibly this Christmas, um, do you think there will be more live music? Um, well, we hope so, actually. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I don't know how they're going to do it, but the Brevard Music Center is opening this summer. Really? They're planning performances. Now, they're supposedly going to cut down on the number of people that can attend the concerts. But uh, just as this pandemic started the music center opened a new concert hall and I'm the only people there that have apparently performed in it are students from Brevard College and they used it basically to record their concerts by distancing themselves <laughs> in this large auditorium and not standing close to each other, but still performing. It's certainly going to be very different. It is, yes. It's going to eventually come back, but I think it's going to take three, possibly five years before everything is is back to what we used to think of as, as being quote-unquote normal. Here on here on Pride Connection, they, they stole one of my lines. Um, uh-huh. I, I, I said once that, Music was a cruel mistress, and um, time has uh, sort of slipped up on us. But we're gonna we're gonna get together and talk some more and uh, talk about this wonderful book of music that you have transcribed and um, that is out there for for students. These are composers that were students of Louis Braille, and I, I think it's going to be very exciting to hear how you managed to do that after. Well, yes, that uh, is a whole chapter <laughs> in itself. Yes. yes, absolutely. 
Well, you know, it's always a pleasure to get to talk to you. And I look forward to doing that. And uh, in, in the meantime, we'll just sort of give folks a chance to think about all the things we've talked about today. And, and uh, maybe we piqued a little interest for the next time we get together to have a, have a little chat. Yeah, sure. Fantastic. That's great. Again, Harvey, it's been a pleasure. I look forward to talking to you soon. And um, I've enjoyed it, actually. Great. Great. I will uh, talk to you soon. All right. Very good. You have been listening to Pride Connection, sponsored by Blind LGBT Pride International. For more information, go to blindlgbtpride.org. The dreamers and me